You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch at Calvary Chapel of Crook County as he teaches through the book of Luke. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join Pastor Ryan now. Luke chapter 11, we're going to look at verses 14 to 54 this morning, um, finishing up Luke 11. Let's just pray as we uh, open God's Word this morning. Father, we ask that you would come here, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us in your Word, personally and individually. God, each and every person that's sitting here this morning, Lord, you have something to speak to them, Lord. And I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. That, Lord, we wouldn't just come to get this over with so we can put another notch in our belt. We sang a few songs. We did communion. Listen to this guy go on, and now I get, I'll go home and do what I want to do. God, I pray that we would have an encounter with you this morning. That, Jesus, you would come, and you would radically change our lives through your word. God, we don't want to just hear another Bible study. God, we want to be impacted by your Son. And Lord, only you can do that. And so we ask that you would, God. We're open to whatever you want to speak to us, God. And Lord, we want to be not only hearers of your word, but doers of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we're going through the Gospel of Luke, uh, we're talking about the life of Jesus, and we're seeing uh, him live life uh, we're, we're seeing the ministry of Jesus, and we're seeing how he interacts with other people, how he treats people, how he loves people. We're seeing the message of Jesus, what Jesus' message is all about, the, the message of the gospel. And we're also seeing the mission of Jesus, that Jesus was and is on mission, that he said, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Jesus was the first missionary sent by God, stepped out of a culture in heaven that was completely foreign and distinct and different than this culture. And he stepped into earth with sin and garbage and filth and darkness. He stepped out of the the light of heaven, out of the perfection of heaven, and he came to this earth as the first missionary. And so we've been talking about the mission of God, and that you and I are on mission as well, that we're missionaries. The the question isn't whether you're a missionary. The question is, how effective of a missionary are you as a Christian? See, we have this concept that, that missions is about going overseas. And we've been talking at great length how mission happens right here in our community. You're missionaries. And the question is, how good of a missionary are you? And what I want to talk about this morning is that as missionaries, as people that are on mission for God, it will be difficult. You're going to have trials and tribulation and difficulties. People are going to come at you and they're going to question you and they're going to challenge you and they're going to chastise you. They're going to make fun of you. And if that isn't happening in your life, you have to question whether you're truly on mission. Because if you're on mission with God, you guys, the message of the gospel offends people. And it makes people challenge you and question you and make fun of you. And so we we shouldn't be surprised by that. We shouldn't get down about that. Because it's part of the mission. It's what happened to Jesus. And it's what happens to him in our text this morning. And we're going to see Jesus questioned and challenged in three ways in our text. First of all, Jesus is accused of being empowered by the devil. Now, I don't know if you've been insulted as a Christian, but that's an insult. 
You're empowered by the devil, by Satan himself. I mean, that's not a really cool thing to say. It's certainly not cool to say to God. They said it to him. You're accused of being empowered by the devil. Jesus is challenged to prove himself by showing a sign. How many times have you heard people say that? Well, I'll believe in God when he shows me himself, when he reveals himself to me. And that's what they did to Jesus. They challenged him to prove himself by showing a sign. And then thirdly, Jesus is questioned about his personal allegiance to the Jewish law, about his hygiene, about his personal rules and regulations and and how he was willing to, to not adhere to those things. And they came at him and they challenged him because of that. And so Jesus essentially spends the entirety of our text this morning answering his critics. And in typical Jesus fashion, giving them much more than they bargained for. And that's what you got to love about Jesus. Is that when he's questioned and when he's challenged, he doesn't get offended and go ad hominem. You know, where he starts attacking them personally, making fun of their mom, you know. He doesn't do that. What he does is he reasons with them in a very logical, thought-provoking manner. And we see that really in verses 17 to 28 as he responds to the accusation of satanic influence, as he reasons with them. And so starting in verse 14, and he was casting out a demon and it was mute. So it was when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke and the multitudes marveled. And so Jesus is casting out a demon that had actually possessed a man to a point where he was mute. He couldn't speak. That was the kind of influence this demon had on this particular man. So Jesus cast the demon out of this guy, and now the man begins to speak, demonstrating that the demon was no longer possessing him. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, or by the ruler of demons. Others testing him sought from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself... How will his kingdom stand? Because you say I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And so Jesus is questioned. He is accused of being demonically and satanically influenced. And so he responds to the accusation by basically turning the tables on them. By using logic. And the first matter of logic that he uses is, look, if I'm working for the devil, okay, let's just, let's just concede your thoughts here. If I'm working for the devil then does it make a lot of sense for me to cast demons out of people? Isn't that kind of counterproductive? Isn't the whole like MO of Satan to possess people, to terrorize their lives? Why would I then cast him out? It would seem like that would be my goal. We've won. Why would I then cast him out? That is stupid. And what Jesus does is he uses logic. And here's something, you guys. When you're on mission, you're going to be questioned. People are going to come at you, they're going to challenge you, and it's okay to use logic. This idea that if you become a Christian, you check your brain at the door, and you never have to use it again, which, I mean, let's face it, some Christians look like they don't use it. It's like, is that matter in your head being used? I I wonder. The, The things that we say, the answers that we give people, they're not thought out, they're stupid, they're arrogant, it, it's, it's just a bunch of hocus-pocus to people. And, and it's okay to reason. Isaiah 55 says, Come let us reason together. 
The Bible says, love the Lord your God with all of your mind. It's okay to think. Christianity is not all about emotion. Now, some of you need to get some emotion. I was kind of thinking of that this morning as we were clapping. We are not a clapping church. That's probably because I can't lead you any further than I am myself. I can't clap. So I, I just can't. I try and I'm off key, every, off beat every time, so I just give up. I can't sing and clap at the same time. I get it from my mom. She can't do it either. It's just, it's bad DNA. So, I mean, it's just, it's the bottom line. But, it, you know, we, we probably don't struggle with, you know, the emotional side of things here, making it all about emotion. But you know what? It, it's really bad if you're vacuous of emotion in vacuous of some logical thinking. And it's okay to reason. It, it's okay to think through things and to give people cogent answers. And books like The Reason for God, written by Tim Keller, phenomenal book. I, I highly recommend it. It'll give you some, some help in, in giving people a hope for the, the, a reason for the hope that lies within you. And so Jesus, first of all, gives them logic. And then he further substantiates this argument by saying, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. The, the religious rulers of the day, the very ones that were questioning Jesus and condemning Jesus and saying that he was casting demons out by the ruler of the demons, they actually did the same thing. They had people among them who were exorcists within the Jewish leadership of the day. And so Jesus is saying, look, why do they get a pass? If they're casting out demons and I'm casting out demons, why do you assume I'm doing it by Satan and they're not? There's no answer for that. And see, Jesus can give us that kind of wisdom. The, the same Jesus that had these phenomenal answers for people, he wants to give you that kind of logic and reason so that you can answer people in a way that makes them think. Not in a way that ticks them off and they go home cussing you out, which is what I want to do to most people that are out on the street proclaiming the gospel, you know, like with signs and bullhorns and stuff. I mean, that, that irritates me, and I'm a Christian. I believe what they're saying for the most part. I can't imagine if I didn't believe it. It's just annoying. It's irritating. So we shouldn't make people upset with us because of our style, because of our method. People should go home being challenged, and it's okay to be challenged, and it's okay to undress them a little bit. To make them think. That's what Jesus does with logic. He doesn't say, oh, I had a burning in my bosom. And let me tell you, you know, I just know that I'm called to cast out demons. It's what I'm called to do. He doesn't give them that kind of bull. But then he goes further to say, but if I cast out demons with the finger of God, with the power of God. Let's, now that I've turned the tables on you guys, now that I've got you thinking, now that you have nothing to say, let me insert some words into your mouth. And that's what Jesus is a master of. Asking questions, making people think, kind of undressing them logically, and then going, okay, now that I've made you feel a little bit stupid, let me tell you the truth. And bam, right at that moment, striking while the iron's hot. He says, if I cast out demons with the finger of God or the power of God, the spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, hey, if by chance I'm doing this by the power of God, then you've got problems because you're rejecting the very one who you should be embracing. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, 
his goods are in peace. So when a buff dude is guarding his palace, everything's good. Nobody can get by him. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. So if somebody comes who's stronger and bigger and more powerful than that guy, and he takes him out, then there's a problem. And Jesus said to them, essentially, I'm stronger than the devil. I created the devil. Yeah, we gave him ownership and rulership because Adam abdicated it to him, and he became the god of this world for a time. But I came, and I took him out, and I crushed him. Genesis 3.15 prophesies of that. Thousands of years before it would happen. Satan would bruise Jesus' heel, but he would crush his head. And now we're living in a time where slowly but surely God is setting up his kingdom on this earth because he's already destroyed Satan and now Satan is just sort of doing God's bidding. Let's not get into this ridiculous notion Remember that Carmen song that pitted God against Satan like it was some kind of, you know, UFC bout? You know, God against Satan. And in this corner, wearing the blue trunks, you know. Ridiculous. Oh, I hated that song. I remember people saying how great that song was. It's absolutely theologically incorrect. There was no battle going on between God and Satan. There's no battle going on now with a word of his mouth. He created the heavens and the earth, including Satan. With the word of his mouth, he'll destroy Satan. He'll be chained. He'll be bound. And right now, Satan is just God's pawn, doing his bidding. When a stronger than he, speaking of Jesus, comes upon him and overcomes him, then there's a problem. And that's what Jesus did with Satan. He destroyed him at the cross. So now that you're thinking about that, now that I've made it really clear to you, Who I am, he says in verse 23, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Jesus condemns two types of people here. He condemns those who are against Jesus. And we talked about that on Easter, how that maybe you're a person that says, I believe in God. A lot of people say that. We live in America. I mean, everybody believes in God. Now people are becoming more and more free, I think, to say what their God is. And and you're seeing people in a post-Christian society being at least honest that their God is Oprah, you know, or some other weirdness. At least people are being honest about it. But everybody believes in God. There's, There's some kind of God that people believe in. And so it's no big deal when somebody says, oh, I believe in God. I I go out and I find him in, in nature. You know, a lot of guys around here, apparently they find God by going out in nature and then killing nature and you know, gutting it and hanging it on their wall. Apparently that's how you find God in in nature around here. But whatever it is, I'm going to find God somewhere. You know, oh, when I'm out working on my cars, I find God, you know. There's nothing like it. It's like, okay, well, that's good for you, but that's not exactly um, how it works. And Jesus said, look, if you're against me, if you're not for me, then you're against me. And so you might say, I believe in God, but if you're not embracing the person and work of Jesus, then you're against God, and you crucified Jesus. You killed him, and you're standing in opposition to the very God or the concept of God that you believe in. If you're not with me, you're against me. So that's for those of you who say you believe in God and yet have not embraced Jesus Christ. Then he condemns those of us who say, well... I believe in God. I I may even believe in Jesus. I've embraced 
Jesus and the cross, but I'm not really gathering with him. I'm not on mission with him. And he says, he who does not gather with me scatters. So if you're not on mission with God, if you're not serving Jesus, if your life is not completely surrendered to him, if you haven't been crucified with Christ, if you're not reckoning your old man to be dead, indeed to sin, you're not gathering for him, you're not serving him, you're not a living sacrifice, then you're actually scattering. See, we have this notion, and it becomes really clear when supposed Christians go into churches and kill ushers who are abortion doctors and feel good about it. That's what happened last week. An usher at a Lutheran church, you know, can you imagine the guy's handing out you know, the, the, the tithe basket, passing it around. Somebody pulls out a 357, just blows him away. All in the name of Jesus. All in the name of, you kill babies, so I'm going to kill you. Now look, I'm not for abortion, but that's absolutely ridiculous. We have this notion that we can legislate Jesus into our government, or we, we can, by forcing our morals on people, make this into a Christian nation again. This whole concept that we were founded on Christian principles and now we need to get back to that. I mean, all of that may be true and all of that would be great, but you guys, that's not our enemy. The government is not our greatest enemy. Legislation is not our greatest enemy. Barack Obama, who may stand for some things you don't agree with and I don't agree with, is not our greatest enemy. And neither was George Bush. And and neither is the internet or TV or movies, or secular music, all the things that we're trying to get out of our lives, all the things we're trying to protect our kids from, that isn't our greatest enemy. The greatest enemy to the church is you. You're the greatest enemy. The greatest enemy to evangelism and to the furtherance of the gospel is you and I. We're the greatest enemy to the cause of Christ. You and I will do more to damage Christianity than any abortion doctor. The guy that shot the abortion doctor, he did more damage to Christianity than that abortion doctor ever did. It isn't the people producing pornography films that are our greatest enemy. The greatest enemy is the Christians who rail against it and then partake of it when no one's looking. That's the greatest enemy to the kingdom of God. That is what will ruin the church and what will hinder the gospel from being furthered. Jesus responds to the accusation of satanic influence. Then he responds to this question that's posted to him in verse 16. It says, Others testing him sought from him a sign from heaven. Hey, Jesus. Yeah, I mean, the whole casting out demons thing, that's kind of cool. But could you do another sign to prove to us who you are? Can you really show us that you're God? I mean, yeah, the the whole feeding of the 5,000 with the little boy's lunch, that was kind of cool. Walking on water, good for you. Calming storms. We want something else from you, Jesus. Can you just show us another sign? And see, here's the thing. Another sign isn't going to do it. It wouldn't matter what Jesus did. They're not going to embrace him because of demonstration. And that's why if you're saying to God, God, just reveal yourself to me. God, show yourself to me. Make yourself clear. God, I'll believe in you if you heal my marriage. You know how many times I've heard people say that? 
and then God radically heals their marriage, and a year later, the guy's being a jerk again, and his wife leaves him for good this time. I mean, the problem isn't God. The problem was you. So God can come, and he can heal your marriage all all you want, but until you pull your head out and actually start to serve him, it's not going to matter until you really want to embrace the essence of the gospel. That's the problem. People don't want the truth. They don't want the gospel. They, they don't want what God has to offer. And so all of the signs and demonstration and God reveal yourself to me is simply a smokescreen. And that's what's happening here. In Jesus, starting in verse 29, while the crowds were thickly gathered together, began to say, this is an evil generation. It seeks a sign. So now he's responding to what started in verse 16. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. And at this point, they're thinking, Jonah the prophet? What kind of sign is that? Are you going to get swallowed by a whale? I mean, what's the deal? For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus says, look, if you want a sign, here it is. Here's your sign, right? If you want a sign, here's your sign. My death, burial, and resurrection. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the, in the heart of the earth, in, in, in the belly of the, the great fish, so Jesus will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, and he will rise from the dead. So Jesus is saying, this is the sign I'm going to show you. My death, my burial, and my resurrection. That's what you're going to see is the greatest demonstration of my power, of my holiness, of my judgment, of my deity. This is it. And it's the greatest sign given to each one of us as well. And if you're saying to God, well, I want you to reveal yourself to me, God, he did on the cross. And you need to embrace that. He gave his life for you. Greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. Jesus laid down his life for you. The God that created you allowed himself to receive the judgment that you deserved. And that's his greatest sign to you. And if you reject that, you're actually standing in greater judgment than anyone else. Because the people of Solomon's time, remember the queen of Sheba, the queen of the south, it's called here in 2 Kings, she came to Solomon and she said to him, Solomon, I want to learn from you. I want to learn how you see life, your philosophy, your knowledge, your wisdom, your worldview. I want to know what you know about God. And Solomon spoke to her and she went back and it changed her life, it changed her country. And Jesus said, a greater than Solomon is here. Jesus said, you'll stand in greater judgment than the Ninevites because Jonah shows up after not even wanting to go there. Remember, he didn't want to go to Nineveh because the last thing he wanted to see was for those people to receive the grace of God. He wanted them to be judged. He hated them. And so when God called him to Nineveh, he gets in a boat going the exact opposite direction. And you know the story, the guys throw him overboard, he gets swallowed by a great fish, he's in a fish for three days and three nights. Now there was a guy some time ago that was swallowed by a whale, and I don't think he survived, but they showed pictures of him, and he was completely white from head to toe, because the stomach 
acid of a fish or a whale bleaches your skin. So the fish spits Noah or Jonah, Noah like animals too, (laughs) spits Jonah up on the beach. He can't, you know, there's no mirror. He doesn't see himself. He trudges into town and he says to him, repent, the judgment of God is coming. And he turns around and leaves. A guy with stark bleach white skin with no love, no grace, no tact, didn't build a bridge, you know, no friendship evangelism, nothing like that. Just goes in, delivers a really harsh message and leaves. And they repented. And Jesus is like, look, I came here and I lived among you. I've worked among you. I've shown myself to you. I've done plenty of miracles for you. I'm going to die on a cross for your sins. I'm going to be resurrected from the grave. And if you reject that, you're going to stand in much harsher judgment than the Ninevites who repented at some bleach white harsh prophet who didn't even want to be there. And so if you're rejecting Jesus this morning, you're under the judgment of God. You're under his wrath. And you don't need a sign. You don't need more miracles. You don't need him to prove himself to you. You know that he's real. You know that he created this earth and all of its intricacies and your body and all of the amazing scientific evidence that we have about how even your human body functions and the fact that you and your wife can get together. Well, it doesn't have to be your wife, but two people can get together, unfortunately. Two people can get together and they can create another life. Not because they're so smart. I mean, just talk to some of these teenagers that are having babies. Have no, there's no good reason they ought to be having babies, right? Just listen to the things that come out of their mouths. They're not the sharpest knives in the drawer, and yet they're able to create a baby, a life. How is that? Is it because they were able to, to figure it out and, and put it together? No, it's God. It's His creative abilities. So you don't need another sign. You don't need God to reveal himself. He's already done that. Now you just need to respond to that. That's the sign that you're given, is his death, his burial, and his resurrection. God died for you. He took his judgment, his wrath, and poured it out on his son, and then raised him from the dead, proving that the sacrifice was accepted. When Jesus said, it is finished, that's what he meant. And so what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with Jesus and the truth of the gospel? And see, it's very important that we understand what the gospel is so that we know what we're giving people. When Jesus says, you stand under the judgment of God, and here it is, my death, burial, and resurrection, we need to understand what that is. We need to understand what Christianity is. And you know what? What's really sad is I don't think that many Christians understand what Christianity is. I don't think a lot of churches understand it. I don't think a lot of pastors understand it. Jesus, in verses 24 to 28, essentially is telling us, you need to get it. If we back up a little bit, it gives us a little background for understanding why he would say, here's your sign. He says, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest. And finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. 
And so Jesus responding to the exorcism of the demon, he gives us some insight about what the gospel is and how we need to embrace the, the real gospel. He says, if you cast a demon out of a guy and the demon leaves and then it goes back to its dwelling place, the dry places, which biblically speaks of the, the dwelling place of evil spirits. So if you cast a demon out, he goes back, he's hanging out with the bros, and then all of a sudden you realize, you know what? I like it back in the person. For whatever reason, demons like to inhabit people. And let's also understand, you guys, that, that demonic possession didn't go the way of the buffalo. It wasn't like Jesus, you know, cast them all out and now they never possess people. People are demon-possessed today. It's just we handle it differently. Now Now we institutionalize them. We fill them so full of drugs they can't think straight. And, and we don't do anything else for them. But there's still demonic possession happening. And if... A, a demon goes out of a person, and he wanders around, and then he says, I want to go back. So he comes back to the person that it, that it was cast out of, and he sees that nothing has replaced the void, that there's still a vacuum. Well, now he goes and gets seven others. They dwell in this man in such a powerful way that his last state is actually worse than his first. And what Jesus is telling us is something that is very, very important for us to get. It's, it's very much the essence of, of Christianity. And that is, it's not enough just to get rid of the negative. You have to embrace Jesus. It's not enough just to become a moral person. And see, we give people the idea that that's the end all of Christianity, is just become a good guy. Quit drinking, quit beating your wife, quit looking at porn, quit drinking, quit stealing, quit being uh, a lousy employee, you know, all of, the, all of the things on the outside, all of the stuff that we would look at and we would say, yeah, that's what it means to be a Christian. Quit being selfish. Quit, quit stealing if you're stealing. Quit lying if you're lying. If you've got a tattoo, you know, cover it up with something that's a little more acceptable. You know, if it's a woman with her bare breasts, you know, now, now it's Jesus on the cross, you know, with a heart or something. And, and so just kind of clean up your life. Just make yourself look acceptable. Quit doing this stuff, this set of things, and, and, and that's the essence of it. And we've given people that idea. But guess what happens? The world, Satan, the flesh, finds that person with their house swept and, and in order. Everything looks good. I mean, wow, this guy has really cleaned up his act. But then all of those things hit him harder than they've ever hit him before. Because they, they got rid of one affection, there was the negative, but they never embraced something to take its place. And I would guarantee that some of you this morning, the end all for you for Christianity is moralism. It's just becoming a better person, it's cleaning up your life, it's getting rid of the garbage of this world. You got a haircut, you cleaned yourself up, you cleaned your language up, you're not cussing anymore, no more beer, no more smokes, no more women or men, but there's, there's no embracing of Jesus. That's not Christianity. That's every religion on the planet. Dr. Phil would tell you to clean up your life. Dr. Phil would tell you to quit drinking yourself into oblivion. Dr. Phil would tell you to quit beating your wife, or to quit cheating on your time card at work, or to get rid of that nasty tattoo. And so would Mormons, and so would Buddhists, and so would Oprahites. They would all tell you to do that. And if there's no Jesus, 
if you're not getting rid of the one affection and then grabbing hold with everything you have and letting Jesus capture your heart, then you guys, we've got religion. It's a waste of time. That's what Jesus is saying. That's the essence of Christianity. It's Jesus. That's all we have. And man, when you embrace Jesus and he captures your heart, then he cleans up your life from the inside out. And he's going to talk about that with the Pharisees, about trying to, to clean up the outside and have it influence the inside. And it doesn't work. You guys, let us never give people the idea that Christianity is just a list of rules and regulations, that it's just moralism. Let's give them the understanding by the way we live that Christianity is a relationship, that it's about a person, that it's about letting Jesus capture your heart and giving him your affection. And when you do that, you're not going to be worshiping men anymore and thinking that you've got to have a man. You're not going to be worshiping money anymore or success. You're going to be worshiping him. See, it's a, it's a replacement of idols because we're idol worshipers. We're idolaters. And yes, you can get rid of all the idols that will make you look good, all the stuff, but you're still going to have an idol in your heart and it will become something else. And unless you give that affection to Jesus, something else more powerful will take its place. And for many of you, for many in the church, it's called legalism. It's called moralism. That's how I'm going to relate to God. I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to throw myself into that. And that's where self-righteousness comes from. That's where spiritual pride comes from. And it's, it's ugly. And it's a complete misconception of what the gospel is. Embrace Jesus. You guys, he's the best thing about us. Jesus is the best thing about us. That's all we have. It's not our cool building. It's not comfortable chairs. It's not cool music. It's Jesus. It's not a list of rules and regulations. It, it isn't moralism. That's not the best thing that we have, you guys. That's not what we have to offer people, is a cleaned up life. And he goes on to explain that even further in verses 27 and 28. And it happened, as he spoke these things, that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts that nursed you. I mean, here's a fan. This lady's stoked. She's listening to Jesus. She's see him, seeing him make fools out of the religious mafia. And she's like, I kind of like this guy. He's kind of cool. Hey, Jesus, blessed are you and your mom too. Jesus said, <laughs> more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And this is another thing I really, really love about Jesus. He does not ever give in to flattery. You know, here's this lady, she's making a fool out of herself. She's jumping up and down the crowd. Jesus, you're cool, I love you, man. You know, if, if she was on Facebook, she'd be a fan of Jesus, sending it out to all her friends. Jesus doesn't respond, like, with anything that you would expect. Like, oh, thank you so much. Uh, do you want an autograph, you know? Jesus says to her, which could sort of be construed as a little bit offensive. Yeah, 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 that's nice. But more than that... Blessed are those who hear my word and keep it. I mean, she's got nothing to say to that. In other words, hey, I appreciate the emotion. I appreciate the fanfare. But you know what would be better? If you heard my word and actually did something with it. Okay, uh, thank you. I'm not really sure what to say to that, you know. That's what I love about Jesus. He, he had this way about him that could say very direct things without offending people because of his method. Nobody ever said Jesus is rude or he's condescending. They didn't like him. They didn't like his message, but it was never the way that he delivered it, and yet he was so straightforward. And you guys, it's not enough 
to simply be a fan of Jesus. You know, Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt. You know, Jesus bobblehead. All, all of the trappings of Christianity. And I mean, there are a lot of them. Just go to the Christian bookstore. You don't even have to have any money. A lot, some of you are unemployed. Just go to the Christian bookstore. It's hilarious. Just go and look at the, the t-shirts that are like knockoff of Starbucks and Nike. You know, do the right thing. You know, Jesus. I mean, was God waiting around for all eternity for Nike to come up with a slogan so that God could rip it off? I mean, seriously? Is that where we've sort of relegated ourselves to in the church? Is ripping off marketing slogans and attaching Jesus to it? You know, then you make your way up to the counter after you pass by rows and rows of music that all sounds the same and there's no artistry at all. And, and then you get up to the counter and you got testaments, you know, as if Tic Tacs aren't good enough. We, <laughs> we need to have scripture verses inlaid into them. I mean, serious? The other day I, I saw an email for essence of Jesus cologne so you can smell like Jesus. I don't know if I want to smell like Jesus. I really don't. I mean, because it's made of myrrh, you know. It's made of myrrh, so it's the essence of Jesus. Serious? Wow. We can have all the trappings of Christianity, you guys, and not have Jesus. All those things don't make you close to Jesus at all, and it doesn't allow you to give him away to other people. You can smell like Jesus, whatever that means. You can have a t-shirt on with his mug on the front, which I'm certain that he didn't look like that, but you can have that on, and you can have all the right things to say, and you can be giving people all of the right music. But if you don't have Jesus as capturing your heart, then you've got nothing to give people. People don't need a t-shirt or a slogan or a bumper sticker or cheese ball music. It's not what people need. What people need is to be radically transformed by the living God. That's what people need. And Jesus makes that clear. Man, blessed are you if you hear my word and do it. That's Christianity. That's what it's all about. And Jesus responds in verses 33 through the end of the chapter, really to this, this third challenge that the religious leaders bring his way. They, they question him about his allegiance to the Jewish law, to the Mosaic law. They question him about his hygiene. So we're talking about Jesus and, you know, his smell. Maybe he didn't smell that great because they're going to question him about his hygiene. And we're going to read it and go, well, that seems kind of weird that he wouldn't wash his hands, but it's way beyond washing hands. Starting in verse 33. No one, when he has lit a lamp, puts it in a secret place or under a basket, but on a lampstand that those who come in may see the light. In other words, if you've got a light on your, your bed stand, you, you don't hide it under a pillow or under the bed. It's there for a reason. Simple. The lamp of the body is the eye. If you know anything about the human body, you know that, that the eyes let in light and, and then the, the retina processes that and sends signal to your brain and, and your brain is able to, to know and recognize it and sends it back out and it's this really, really complicated and intricate system, your eye. It's the most intricate system in all of the world. It, you know, God in his creation uh, is unrivaled. You know, Apple, IBM, Windows, they got nothing on Jesus in his creation. And, and all you have to do is lose an eye like I did, my left eye, and know that when it's not functioning properly, you're in darkness. Once in a while, I'll get something in my right eye, like I'm driving down the road, it's really bad. 
I'm driving down the road, I'm blind in my left eye, you know, and like something floating around gets into my eye. And all of a sudden I'm like, ah, you know, and trying to drive, can't see, and getting it out of my eye, and like for five seconds, I, I feel like I'm going to crash. And, and you know, if, if you have any kind of sight issues, that, that basically you've got two options. You've got light and you've got darkness. And when your eyesight goes, you're in darkness. Those that are blind are living in darkness. And that's the illustration that Jesus is giving. And he says the lamp of the body is the eye. It's what illuminates things. See, all of the the light and the sights of this world are useless if you don't have eyes. Think about that for a second. God's creation is absolutely useless to you if you don't have eyes. You can't see it. You can't partake of it. The lamp of the body is the eye. And the, the eye here is speaking of your worldview because Jesus is making a spiritual application. He's talking about how you view spiritual reality. And he's rebuking the Pharisees, the religious mafia, for their spiritual blindness. He's saying your worldview is is totally jacked up. And he, he says, therefore, when your eye or when your worldview is good or healthy, your whole body also is full of light. So when your worldview is right and you're relating to God properly and you understand the gospel, then your whole life will be where it needs to be. It'll be healthy. But when your whole body, when your eye, your worldview is bad, unhealthy, not right, not relating to God properly, your body is full of darkness. So you have two choices. How you see God, how you relate to him. Is it through Jesus or is it through some figment of your imagination it determines the health of your entire life therefore take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness so this supposed light that you think is truth take heed that it actually isn't a lie that it actually isn't unhealthy that it actually doesn't separate you from god if then your whole body is full of light having no part dark the whole body will be full of light as when the bright shining of a lamp gives you light simple illustration Jesus is making is that you need to relate to him properly through your worldview, through how you see God, and it's through Jesus Christ. And if you're not seeing him properly, then you're spiritually blind. And Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees for being spiritually blind. They think they've got it figured out. They think they know God, but actually they're missing it. The Pharisees were classic for living on a journey of completely missing the point. Jesus said, that the Pharisees prided themselves because they knew the Scripture and they studied the Scripture and they searched the Scripture. And in them, they thought they had life. But Jesus said, these are they which testify of me. And so all of your knowledge, all of your insight into the Word of God is meaningless if you miss Jesus. And that's true of Christians as well. If you're just studying the Bible to know the Bible so that you can win Bible trivia and you can impress people, but you're missing Jesus, then you're missing the point. And as the church, we have missed the point. We're teaching our children that the end all is just to simply know the Bible, but we're not giving them Jesus. And Jesus said, be careful. Be careful, Pharisees, that what you think is light is actually not darkness. Be careful that what you think is spiritual sight is actually spiritual blindness. And he's setting them up for this final lesson that we're going to see as Jesus is questioned about his allegiance to the Jewish Mosaic law. He says, as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him. And you know that if a Pharisee is asking Jesus to dinner, 
There's a reason. They're, they're setting him up for something. So he went in and sat down to eat. And when the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. Now, like I said, we might think, well, yeah, you got to wash your hands, man. That's gross. I make my kids wash their hands. Why wouldn't Jesus wash his hands? This is way more than washing your hands. This is way more than the little pump soap at the sink and some hot water. This is like a whole ritual. This is an ordeal that was very involved. And it was all so that you could say that you're clean before God. And Jesus is going to make the point, look, you can do all of that ceremonial washing, but your heart is wicked. Then Jesus said to him, Now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Again, talk about getting right to the point. Jesus again doesn't say, You know, I really appreciate you Pharisees. You guys really do a lot of good works and you really know the Bible. And I just got to tell you, I commend you for all these things. He doesn't do any of that. He just cuts right to the heart and he says, You know what you guys are like? You guys are like a cup, a cup that's meant to hold water. And it's got all kinds of gross, nasty stuff inside of it. But you don't worry about that. You just get the, the outside of the cup clean. You wash it up. It looks good. You pour water and there's floaties and nastiness in it. And you go ahead and take a big swig. And I mean, I don't know about you, but there's nothing worse than floaties. There's nothing worse than a gross cup, right? And Jesus is saying, look, you are that gross cup. You're the person who takes the cup out of the dishwasher that's got nastiness in it and just assumes, hey, it ran through the dishwasher and you put it back in the cupboard. And then somebody comes over and you pour them a nice big glass of water and they're like, "Um, yeah, and you know, a couple little sips and they set it down and then they leave and you go, I wonder why they didn't drink their water. And there's just all, you know, pieces of food from the night before floating around inside of it, you know, milk residue shooting up from the bottom. You know, who wants that? Nobody wants that. Jesus said, that's like you guys. You're classic at getting your outside cleaned up, but having your heart far from me. Your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. It's like many of the buildings around town. They've been fixed up from the outside. They've been painted. There's a facade. They look really nice. But you go inside and you start to look at the electrical and the plumbing and it's like from the 20s. And you turn on the light and there's like a, four second delay before it kind of flickers on, you know, and then it fades off and on for a while. And and the pipes sound like they're being tortured inside the walls, just groaning, you know, but the outside of the building looks great. You can very easily and very cheaply fix up the outside of things. I can do that. I can paint. And I mean, I am the most unhandy guy there ever was. And I can paint. I can make something look good from the outside, but it's the inside it's, it's the heart of the matter that really determines the structure of a building. It can look good, but the foundation is all messed up and the, the building is actually sloping and falling apart and the ceiling's caving in. Jesus said, that's like your life. Foolish ones. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But rather, give alms of such things as you have. Then indeed, all things are clean to you. But woe to you, Pharisees, For you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Jesus said, let me tell you guys something. You have absolutely missed the point. You're doing all these things. You're tithing down to even your spices. I mean, can you imagine going home, going through your spice rack and pulling out cinnamon and thyme and sage and saffron? I mean, today that might be a sacrifice. Spices are really expensive, right? But 
I mean, it's just ridiculous. Jesus is saying, you're, you're getting down to the nitty-gritty tithing to the penny. It's like writing a check, you know, for $243.02. That's my tithe. I mean, it's down to the penny. I'm not rounding that puppy up for anything. It is to the penny. And that's what, that's what Jesus is indicting the Pharisees for. For getting down to the penny with their tithe and with the outward exterior of things, but missing the main stuff, like treating people with love and kindness, like having joy. You know, it doesn't do any good for our mission to be tithing to the penny and then treat people like garbage. It, but it's not one or the other, see? It doesn't do any good for you to get rid of your TV, but then to have all kinds of garbage being filtered through your mind and to be a lust hound. I mean, good, good for you. you. You got rid of your TV. And it's typically the people that get rid of that stuff that, that want to tell you about it all the time. It's like, yeah, have you seen that show, you know, whatever it is? Ever watch The Office? Oh, no, brother. I have not had a TV since 1976. Well, no wonder they were horrible back then. Have you seen the new ones? <laughs> have you had HD? I don't blame you that, for not having one since then. But, you know, I don't have cable. Have you seen them? I never go to the movies. It's like they have to tell you. I have never had alcohol pass through these lips. Well, good for you. That's awesome. And I mean, I, I mean that seriously. Good for you if you got rid of your TV. But if you're not replacing that with other things that are going to draw you closer to God and not just self-righteousness, then go get a TV. It, it, you're wasting your time. If, if you're not drinking alcohol simply so you can say, I never drank alcohol in my life, the hops and soured grapes have never passed through these lips. I mean, if that's what you're doing just so that you can brag to people, then again, you are completely missing the point. Now, look, I'm not saying go out and get a TV, and I'm not saying go drink. If you're convicted about that, then don't do it. But, like Jesus said, don't miss the point. These you, have, you should have done without leaving the others behind. And I find that it's often the people who have all of the exterior trappings who miss the main stuff, like loving people, like social justice, like showing mercy and kindness and humility. That's the main point. That's what Jesus ought to do. Do you think Jesus came and died on a cross just so you won't have a microbrew? Just so that you won't have a TV in your house? Is that the end result of Christianity? If it is, I'm out. It's stupid. And again, I'm not telling you to go and, and buy a beer just to be cool. I'm not saying go get a tattoo so that you can fit in with the young crowd. Do all things to all men. You know, I'm not saying run out and buy a new TV or watch things that you wouldn't normally watch. Don't have your convictions based on mine. Don't say, well, Pastor Ryan, he has a TV, so that must mean I can have one. Do what God's telling you to do. If God's convicted you about any of those things, then don't do it. But don't leave that out and then miss the stuff that Jesus actually wants you to do. And see, we're classic for that as Christians. I think it's, it's no more demonstrated than in the life of a pastor. I've heard pastors say that it's okay for Christians to drink, but as an elder pastor, we are never to drink. And the Bible doesn't say that. In fact, Jesus was called a wine-bibber, but that's a whole different story. But I've heard pastors say that. We never drink. We don't watch these kinds of movies. And then they completely ignore what the Bible does say, which is to, like, love your wife and have your family in order. So here's the pastor, no TV, no drink, 
Pastors don't do that. Okay, that's cool. The Bible doesn't prohibit it. Then they've got their family in absolute chaos and nobody says a word. Does it ever strike us weird that we're elevating things the Bible doesn't say and ignoring things the Bible does? Like, hey, bro, I'm glad that you don't drink, but your family is being driven into the ground by your idiocy. So you might want to start loving your wife, and maybe the two of you can have a beer together. You know what I mean? It's like, what are we doing? We're completely missing it, you guys. We're completely missing it. I'll tell you why we do that. Because it's a lot easier to get rid of beer or a TV than it is to love your wife. It's a lot easier to do that. And you know what else? Nobody wants to say anything because then they'll have to start doing it too. And that's why you go to pastor's conferences and you hear all the trappings of Christianity and all the things that pastors ought to be doing, but nobody's addressing the fact that our biggest problem is that our families are in chaos and that our kids hate God. Nobody's talking about that because it's true for all of us. And if I say something to you, then I've got to go do something about it. And God knows I don't want to do that. So I'll just keep eschewing alcohol and neglecting the weightier things. Absolutely crazy. And it's Phariseeism at its greatest. Woe to you Pharisees. For you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites. For you are like graves which are not seen, and the men who walk over them are not aware of them, thus becoming defiled. And so you're actually a hindrance to people. You're actually harming the work of God is what Jesus is saying. Then one of the lawyers answered and said to him, Teacher, by saying these things, you reproach us also. This guy's a genius. And he said, Woe to you also, lawyers, for you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation. They thought that they actually affirmed the prophets, but they killed the prophets just like their forefathers did because they weren't embracing the truth of what the prophets said. And you might think that you are a Jesus lover, that you're a fan of Jesus, but if you're not heeding his word, if you're not doing what he said, then you are opposed to him. You continue to crucify him. You are an enemy of him. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers! For you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in you hindered. And as he said these things to them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something that he might say that they might accuse him. So we'll pick it up in chapter 12, seeing Jesus answer his critics even further. But you guys, let's not be on the great journey of missing the point. Let's not give people the idea that they just need to get rid of the exterior baggage that we want them to rid themselves of without giving them the essence of Christianity, which is Jesus. He's the best thing about us. He's all we have to offer people. Let's stand and pray together. Father, thank you so much for this time together this morning, this afternoon. God, we thank you for your word. 
God, we thank you that it pierces right to our heart. It separates bone and marrow, God, and that is painful. Lord, that is extremely painful to us. And God, some of us here this morning have been pierced. God, you've, you've hit us upside the head with your word. And God, I pray that we wouldn't leave this place just thinking, oh, that was funny or wasn't, wasn't that cool what he said, but that, God, we would truly want to apply these things to our life, that, God, we would want these things to be real. Jesus, I pray that we would embrace you, that, Jesus, we would allow you to capture our hearts afresh and anew this morning. And, God, if there's, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you personally, Jesus, I pray that right now they would embrace you, that they would confess with their mouth the Lord Jesus, and they would believe in their heart that you raised him from the dead, that they would embrace the gospel, that Jesus, you would capture their hearts, that you would become the Lord of their lives. And Lord, I pray for those of us that do know you, that Lord, maybe we've gotten into a legalistic mindset. God, maybe we have become an enemy of the gospel, an enemy of evangelism. God, forgive us. We confess that to you, God. Forgive us for our legalism and our self-righteousness. God, deliver us. Jesus, capture our hearts like never before. Here we are. God, take us. Use us, Lord. We want to be on mission for you. And Jesus, we recognize that the best thing we have is you. Jesus, you're the best thing about us. Jesus, we want to make you famous. Be glorified in our lives. Be exalted. May we give you away. Not rules and regulations. May may we give you, Jesus, away. The person, the tangible person that John talks about in 1 John, Lord, that he touched you and he saw you. God, that's the kind of relationship we want to have with you. And you made it possible. Make it real. Make it fresh. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch of Calvary Chapel, Crook County. For more information, you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thanks for listening and God bless.